So welcome to Tithes and Offerings. This is lesson one, and this lesson is entitled The First Three Offerings. One of the things we're going to endeavor to do over the course of these messages is not just look at the letter of the law concerning tithes and offerings, but look, look at the heart. What is the heart of what God wants out of a tithe? What is the heart of what God wants out of an offering? Uh, there's a lot of debates now, well, it's been going on for a long time, that tithes and offerings are under the law, and uh, we're under a new covenant, therefore we're free, which is one of the most ignorant doctrinal statements I have ever possibly heard. And it shows a misunderstanding of the law. It shows a misunderstanding of Bible interpretation and hermeneutics. The first three offerings we're going to look at this morning are not under the law. They predate the law by 2,400 years. And yet God is teaching many things about offerings. Furthermore, the New Testament talks about them plenty. And we'll get into that in future lessons. So I want to jump into this. In this lesson on the first three offerings, we're going to look at precedences and principles set forth in these first three offerings. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, and you see the will of God demonstrated here in the book of beginnings multiple times. We understand everything we know about marriage from the book of Genesis. And we understand how the Lord wants things done by the book of Genesis. We understand what his original intent was from the book of Genesis. We can learn a lot about tithes and offerings from the book of Genesis. So let's look at our lesson here. Uh, The act of giving can be a demonstration of love, devotion, affection, honor, and commitment. And we all get that when it comes to loving a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or even your kids. When you, when you love them and you're committed to them and you want to show your affection, you just give and give and give. And the more you love, the bigger you give. And it blesses you. Sometimes I think we give because it blesses us more than it blesses the person we're giving to. Giving, however, as an act of worship is recorded in both the Old and New Testaments. And so we have to probably begin to shift our minds a little bit in our hearts. Sometimes we give, I'm going to speak to us as our church, sometimes we give because we realize there's an assignment, there's a mission. We have a building project. We have a mission trip to take. We want to buy a new church van or maybe there's new whatever or we got to publish something. So we give towards that, but we can never lose track of the fact that giving is done because we love, we honor We're committed and we're devoted to the cause of Christ and to Jesus Christ himself. We don't just give to accomplish an assignment. That's the purpose of the giving. But the heart behind it is what we've got to begin to tweak. We can worship the Lord by giving our time, our energy, and our substance. And, of course, the more we love the Lord, the more we're committed to him, the more time we'll give him, the more energy we'll give him, the more of our substance we'll give him. The Bible teaches two ways to give substance to the Lord. That is through tithes and offerings. These lessons will cover much of what the Bible has to say concerning tithes and offerings. This first lesson examines some of the biblical principles of giving established by the first three offerings recorded in the Bible. These first three offerings predate the law by over 2,000 years. So just to keep that in mind, it's under the law. Well, all the Old Testament is not the law. Only about two and a half books, literally two books of the Old Testament are law. You have Moses, you have the prophets, you have books of poetry, books of history, books of prophecy. Uh, It's really ignorant to say, that's under the Old Covenant, because Jesus Christ was the embodiment of Moses and the prophets, and we're still under him. Amen. And we still can't murder, nor should we want to. We still can't have sex with dogs, nor should we want to. So really, some of these arguments among these liberal church folks are ignorant, And really, it's a push by the Antichrist spirit to be lawless. Antinomianism is the fancy term. 
We are not antinomian. We are not anti-law. I love a good law. Just tell me what to do. Furthermore, there's 12 laws the New Testament says we're under. Perfect law of liberty, the law of love, the law of sin and death, the law of grace. I mean, we're, we're under lots of law. And I always like to point out the Old Testament only had 613 commandments. We have over 1,000 in the New Testament. Over two-thirds of the Old Testament commandments were ceremonial. Everything in the New Testament is directly applicable. So we have way more laws and commandments under the New Testament, and yet we're more free. Amen. And that always upsets folks who want to be lawless and live like pigs. So let's look at the first offering. The Hebrew word is minka, and that's very critical. And I call this an offering of honor. The very first offering was an offering of honor or tribute. It was also the first act of worship recorded in the Bible, and it's the offering of Cain and Abel. Look at Genesis 4 here. And in the process of time, which means as time went on, or at harvest time, as one translation says, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering. This word minka is a tribute, a gift. It is specifically a bloodless offering. That's critical. He brought an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect, regard, and he looked upon Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. He had no regard. He didn't look upon it. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. Isn't that usually what happens when we're selfish and we don't get our way? We throw a little pity party and a temper tantrum. Apparently, they were comfortable enough around the presence of God to act like brats, or at least he was. In this first offering, I want you to see that both brothers brought an offering to the Lord. And the Hebrew implies it was a tribute. They brought it forth to pay respect to the Lord. It was, it was something they had that they brought forth to honor the Lord. It's important to keep in mind that the Lord doesn't need anything we have. The Lord is the all-sufficient one. He doesn't need any dollar amount we have. He doesn't need the car we have. He doesn't even need the body we have. But what he is after is our heart. He doesn't need anything he ha we have, but he wants our heart. Amen. So you have to keep that in mind. An offering, however, is our way of showing honor, respect, commitment, and appreciation to God. And the more we honor him, the more we respect him, the more we're committed to him, the more we appreciate him, the more we will want to give towards him. Though we know he doesn't need anything we have. I mean, even in these modern times, we, we, we make a check out to the Lord. That's our offering. The Lord does nothing with that. He doesn't, there's not some kind of giant bank tube that sucks the check up into heaven. The Lord cashes it. It's not about that. You know, we've had toboggans come in the offering. We've had coupons. We've had bleach in a bottle come in an offering. We've had all sorts of offerings given. None of it ends up in heaven. It all stays here in the earth, but all of it, if it's given properly, is given because they love the Lord and they want to help his kingdom. His kingdom is not being built in heaven. His kingdom is being built in the earth. By the way, the bleach and paper towel offering was given at Christmas time, and it was put under the Christmas tree as a gift to Jesus, and we used it for the kingdom. We used it to clean the church. We used it to clean up after the children, and that pleases the Lord too. There's no biblical precedent for a bleach offering, but the, I'm sure the Lord received it because they said... It was, a, it was a single mom. She said, we, have some, we had some stuff left over, and we didn't know we didn't have any money to give. So we, with our stuff, we just bought some bleach and some stuff we figured the church could use for the kingdom. It's an offering. Because we had taken the money and bought the same stuff ourselves. And there is actually an Old Testament principle of converting animals into finances if you can't travel with the animals so far. And so that's proper. It's a biblical rule. 
Our offering can prove to the Lord he has our heart. Keep that in mind. Your offering can prove to the Lord he has your heart. The Lord is never impressed or moved by any amount, by an amount or size of an offering. He is impressed with the heart and motivation behind the offering. You think about the widow's might, and the Bible tells us the Lord sat there and watched everybody give into the offering, and he commented, and we would never do that today because that's not proper. It makes people feel uncomfortable, but it would be very biblical, being very much like Jesus. And I've actually been in churches where they counted the offering right then and there, and I've been in other churches. I was in Chile. I was in... Uh, uh, Punta Arenas, Chile, years ago, and on the board behind the pulpit down there, this is at the Straits of Magellan down in Patagonia, they put every family name and what they gave in the previous offering. That would not fly in America at all for various reasons, but it's very biblical. I'm not going to say we're going to do that here. It helps me not to know what anybody gives. That way I can pray for you, whether you're robbing God or you're blessing him. Amen. The Lord's not impressed with the dollar amount because he bragged more on the widow's might than he did the Pharisees in their abundance. Amen. So let's consider the following facts about this first offering because we're studying these offerings together. We want to see the heart of God. And every one of these offerings demonstrates something different. And it helps paint this picture of how the Lord views offerings, what he accepts, what he rejects, and what he can do to us and through us if, if we obey him in the offering. So consider these facts. The first offering was a tribute gift meant to honor the Lord. This is apparent from the original Hebrew word minka. A minka is a bloodless offering voluntarily presented, voluntarily presented, that's critical, as a gift to honor. This was not a sin offering. That's very important because if you take the, the doctrinal stance, this is a sin offering, it throws out the whole true interpretation. It is taught that the reason Cain was rejected was because he didn't sacrifice an animal. But according to the language, Abel didn't sacrifice an animal either. There's no bloodshed here. This is a voluntary offering. A sin offering is not voluntary. It's mandatory if you sin. So just by the original word alone, we know this has nothing to do with the shedding of blood. Cain and Abel were not atoning for sins with this offering. What sin had they committed? And what law had they received to know what animal to sacrifice for that sin? The law would not be given for nearly 2,400 more years, and without the law, sin is not imputed. Sin offerings are not commanded until Leviticus chapter 4. So the, the teaching that, this, that Cain was rejected because he brought fruits and vegetables and didn't sacrifice a lamb is a, is a misunderstanding of the context here. Because we're talking, this is Genesis chapter 4. There is no law, there is no definition of sin yet. There is no understanding of sin. There's no sin imputed, and if sin is not imputed, there needs to be no atoning. And the very fact that it says that they both, both brought an offering, a bloodless, voluntary honor of tribute, well, then that's exactly what it is, a bloodless, voluntary tribute gift to honor God. And what they brought was what they had. Number two, Cain initiated the offering with what he had to offer, vegetables. That's all he had. It's not a Walmart. There's not a bank. What can he do but grow vegetables? That's what his job was. Abel followed suit with what he had to offer, livestock. This teaches us that offerings are based on what we have to give, not what we don't have. And this is confirmed in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 8, 12 says, Therefore it is accepted not according to what a man doesn't have, but according to what he does have. 
So here in this first offering, we see something the New Testament's already answering. So we have an established principle. Offerings are not about what you don't have. That's why you don't listen to Christian television. They will talk you into bankruptcy. They'll talk you into credit card debt. Christian television is an abomination. It's one of the worst things the body of Christ has ever produced. It, got, it was quickly soured when they saw how much money could be swindled out of grandma's pocket. Amen. So much of Christian television fundraising and offering is unbiblical and it's heresy and they should all be in jail. Not all, probably 95% of them should be in jail. There might be 5% of people on Christian television that are decent, by my humble estimation. I worked the phone lines for a Christian ministry one time, and I saw all the corruption that went on behind the scenes. And it has soured me totally. I have zero respect for Christian television. And we're on television. (laughs) The New Testament confirms this principle. It's not according to what you don't have, but what you do have. The widow's might. All she had was a might. The widow woman, what do you have? Well, I got, some, I got some oil and some flour, and then we're going to bake a cake and die. Well, here's what you do. Bake me a cake first. That's what she did have. Go borrow some vessels from your neighbors and fill them up with oil as another miracle provision. How about the fishes and the loaves? All he had was three fishes and five loaves. It, he didn't, the Lord didn't ask him to go take a bunch more or take out a loan. And it was just what he did have. That's a principle for offerings is what you do have. Amen. Number three, Abel and his offering were seen as one, and Cain and his offering were seen as one. The the offerings were an extension and a representation of the giver. This establishes the principle that God sees our offerings as a reflection of our heart. You need to keep that in mind. And this is confirmed in the New Testament as well. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart or out of the goodness of his heart brings forth good things or the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. Your giving is a reflection of your heart. There's a reason I don't buy Marlon Weaver a lot of stuff. I don't spend much money on Marlon. As much as I love him, I don't love him that much. But I will go, Saturday I went to two different Walmarts trying to find the vacuum cleaner for my little girl because the first Walmart that I bought it at was out. The one I bought broke. And I don't drive around Cookville to Walmarts. Are you kidding me? Have you been to the Cookville Walmarts? Do you know what this town is like at 9 o'clock at night at Walmart? I would never go to two or three Walmarts for Marlon Weaver. As much as I love him, but I will for my little girl. When I know she wants a vacuum and the one we bought broke, doesn't even work when we left Walmart with it. So I will take it back to the Walmart. I will spend time in the Walmart. I will look for the vacuum. They were all sold out, which means now I drive across town to Allgood, to that Walmart, because I can't go home without a vacuum. That's what you do when you love. It's an extension of your heart. You give, you sacrifice. And when we love the Lord, you give, you sacrifice, and you don't think anything of it. It's just part of what you do. And this is what must break the Lord's heart, because so many Christians don't give hardly anything. They just take. They take, 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 take. When they do need something from the Lord, they show real faithful real quick. And then when they get everything nice and leveled out, they disappear from church, they disappear from prayer, they disappear from the house of God, and they switch back to being a parasite. Dudu. That's the Swahili word for parasite. Dudu. Learned that in Kenya this year. I grinned when the interpreter said dudu. I said, you keep using that word. Is that the word for parasite? Yes. It's very fitting. I'll remember that when I go home to America. (laughs) 
Too many Christians are parasites. They're just freeloaders. They don't ever give back to the body. They don't ever give back to the Lord. They just suck and suck and suck. And usually when they get mad and leave, they inject venom, drop off full of blood, the blood of Jesus, and waddle off. And hopefully somebody steps on them, like we do in the South when you pick the tick off the dog's ear and it looks like a big yogurt-covered raisin. (laughs) Country folk know exactly what I'm talking about. We give because our heart loves the Lord. And and our our giving is a reflection. It's an extension of our lives. Amen. Yeah. God looked away from Cain because of his offering. Think about that. He looked away from Cain because of how Cain gave. But he looked more intently on Abel because of how Abel gave. Abel's offering was accepted and he earned God's respect. We've got to ask the question, why does the Lord seem to show partiality? Was it because the Lord is a carnivore and not a vegetarian? I enough of these fruits and vegetables. I want some meat. Is that why the Lord rejected Cain? Don't you know I like meat? We have to ask, why did the Lord reject Cain? Because of his offering. Why did he accept Abel? Because of his offering. Genesis 4, 6 tells us, The Lord said unto Cain, Why are you so mad? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you acting like a brat? This is church time. This is a worship service. If you doest well, the Hebrew says, if you do it joyfully, and that is the key. If you do it joyfully, shall you not be accepted? And if you do it begrudgingly, which is what the Hebrew says, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. How many of you parents, you ever had your children do what you told them to do, but they did it with an attitude, and you said, "Uh uh-uh. Do it right. We, just by natural, we understand that doing the right thing with the wrong attitude is not doing it right. And you as a parent will not accept the vacuuming, the putting the clothes up. You know, you can tell when your kids do it and they kick and they grunt. Uh-uh, do it right, son. Do it right, daughter, or I'm going to wear you out. We, we get that attitude is the critical part, the critical ingredient to doing it right. And that's what the Lord is saying here. If you would do this joyfully. I would accept it. If you do it begrudgingly, sin is at your door. And he wants, you notice he gives a personal pronoun to sin. He, he wants to own you and you must master him. So consider these following observations. The Lord's rejection incenses Cain, angers him. This reveals his heart of anger and moodiness. He didn't really want to give that offering anyway. And I gave it and he didn't accept it. His heart wasn't in it. I don't know why he felt obligated. There was no commandment to give this offering. It's a tribute. They just, maybe it was a competition between him and his brother. We don't know. This shows the Lord will always deal with attitude and motive first and foremost. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is a discern of the thoughts and the motives of the heart. God will always deal with our motives first. In any offering, whether it's a penny or a trillion dollars, he will always look at the motive first. Number two, the Lord doesn't criticize Cain's offering. He never says, if you'd only given me what I wanted, he he, he doesn't touch the offering. The offering's not the problem. In fact, Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abel gave a more, more, more excellent offering. Well, more excellent would infer that Cain's offering was excellent, but it lacked the necessary ingredient of faith and joy. So they both had excellent offerings, but faith and joy made Abel's a more excellent offering than Cain's. The Lord doesn't criticize Cain's offering. He criticizes his begrudging attitude, 
which is what the Hebrew says. The New Testament also admonishes us against any, uh, giving any offering grudgingly. Doesn't 2 Corinthians says that? Not grudgingly, for God loveth a cheerful giver. This is a mirror answering back to the very first offering. Grudgingly versus joyfully. We see it in Genesis 4. Paul reiterates it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Number three, the Lord tells Cain the key to having his offering received is to give it joyfully. And the New Testament confirms this principle as well. The Lord loves a cheerful or a joyful giving, a giver. Every one of us has the ability to give something joyfully. For that loved one, you can't wait for the anniversary or for Valentine's, the birthday. Uh, we were at uh, the Dalt's birthday yesterday, and apparently Lauren wanted a bunny rabbit, and you should have seen how excited everybody in the family was for this monster cage. And it was big enough. I, I asked him, is that, is that the new timeout for the kids? Because this bunny cage was big enough to put a human being in. And everybody was so excited to give Lauren what she had wanted for her birthday. There was joy there because they knew it would bless her. And if we know that our giving blesses the Lord, it'll excite us all the more to give to him. And it's not at the dollar amount. I, I've been so excited about four and five dollar offerings just because it's all I had. And I just, I just love the Lord so much. I wanted to give something to him. And don't you know that's accepted more than a million dollar offering with attitude and strings attached? Yeah, amen. Number four, trying to worship God with a begrudging and bad attitude is legalism. You're doing the right thing, but with an attitude. That's legalism. There's no heart behind it. It's legalism and only opens the door to Satan. An anchor translation says, sin is a demon crouching. I like that translation of uh, verse 7 there. So to do it with a bad attitude, you're just going through the motions. There's no heart to it, and the Lord won't accept it anyway. We'll still use the money. The missionary will use the money. Whatever you give, it'll be used, but you just won't have a reward for heaven, in heaven for it, and the Lord may stiff arm you for a while until you get your heart right. Number five, Cain never adjusted his attitude and went from ruining a worship service to killing his brother. <laughs> That's what happens to all of us if we don't get our heart right. Things escalate, and that crouching demon mastered Cain. He did not master the demon. So that's what we learned from the first offering. There's a lot there. We could probably spend a whole hour or two teaching on that, but I want to cover the first three offerings in the, in the book of Genesis. Let's look at the second offering. This is a different Hebrew word. This is ula. It almost sounds French, doesn't it? But it's not. Uh, this, this word is ula, and this is an offering of consecration. The second offering we see in the Bible is Noah's offering right after the flood. And the first thing he does when he's able to exit the boat is he offers an offering to the Lord. Genesis 8, 20 says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings, plural, on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, which in the original language says an odor of soothing rest. So when the Lord smells a sweet savor, he smells an odor that brings him rest. Think about that. You can give an offering and it brings the Lord rest. I have no explanation for that. I can kind of see it. It's very new to me, but it's what the Hebrew says, and it's used 43 times in the Bible. Noah's offering demonstrates several Bible firsts. Number one, this is the first altar in the Bible. The root for altar is the Hebrew, in uh, the Hebrew means to slaughter, to kill, to sacrifice. So an altar is a special place, a special purpose place designated as sacred and used only for the worship of God. We have this down here as an altar. We, that's what we call it in the church age. This is an altar. This is sacred. 
we, we sacrifice down here, not animals, our flesh. We sacrifice our will. We put to death uh, our desires of personal gain and we lay them at the altar, right? And we say, Lord, not my will, your will be done. We are the living sacrifice. We still have an altar to this day. We, this is not a venue down here. This is sacred. This is holy. You know, we, we don't do dancing and crumping and twerking down here. This is holy. We don't let unholy people lead worship up here. This is sacred. We learn that from Genesis, from the first altar offering. And what God is very disgusted and displeased when churches take the holy altar and instead of offering sacrifices on it, they're serving hot dogs and hamburgers and carnal things and, and mixing DJ records on it. That, that's, that's blasphemous. That shows a total lack of respect for the holy presence of God. It shows an ignorance. It really shows the people in charge don't know God. Because if you knew God, you would understand the principle of altars and that there is holy ground and it's holy because God is there. And if God is there, you don't bring anything else there. You bring people there to meet with God, but you don't dare bring the profane in to defile the holy. You keep the holy things holy. Let the profane things stay in the world. I don't know why the church is adopting so much profanity and trying to call it holy. It's ignorance. So this signifies the, con uh, the consecration and importance of where and how we give offerings. I personally do not give any money to any charity apart from the gospel. I do not support the Red Cross. I don't support the AIDS organizations. I don't support uh, UNICEF. I don't support the World Wildlife Fund. I don't support uh, the Sierra Club. I don't care about any of that. That sounds cold and callous. I might as well say I hate puppy dogs. But I don't give any money anywhere. My money builds the gospel. Now, we occasionally give to the police, and I have occasionally given to tech because they educated me and gave me a great income. So I feel a little bit of obligation there. But my offerings... They don't go to humanitarian causes. The greatest humanitarian cause there is is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord tells me what to give, I give it where he tells me, how he tells me, when he tells me. That's what we see from this. This offering, this signifies the consecration and importance of where and how you give. And I would tell you as your pastor and just as a word to the wise, I wouldn't give any money to Christian television. I wouldn't give any money to anybody you see on Christian television. You would be much better off putting it in the local homeless mission. Let me say this. Did you know that the powers that be in Cookville give a lot of money to the local animal shelter and zero money to the, uh, the homeless mission? That tells me that our money is in humanistic, animalistic Gaia worship. We'd rather put money saving stray animals that country folk around here kill with shotguns than actually help human beings that are down on their luck who have children and mouths to feed. I think that's an abomination. That our city gives no money to help the Christian homeless mission when we have a population of about a thousand homeless people in Cookville. They estimate over 300 children in Cookville in the schools are homeless. I just talked to Luke about this yesterday. Luke is very involved with the homeless work around town. And uh, at least a at least 1,000 people in Cookville are homeless. And yet we're saving animals. That's food. We're throwing money at food and not at human beings who God values. Amen. <laughs> I think we'll be judged for it. Number two, 
First prescribed offering. This is another first from Noah's offering. This is a prescribed offering. The first offering there with the Cain and Abel, it was whatever they had, whatever they wanted to give. This is prescribed. Noah, Noah offered up the first designated offering, and that was clean animals. God had commanded Noah to take seven pairs of all, uh, of all the clean animals onto the ark. And he took of every clean beast. How many animals was this? We don't know. Now, we famously say two by two, but the Bible says that he took two by two of the unclean and seven pairs of all the clean. So there wasn't just two by two, but there were seven sets of every clean species of animal. So when, the, when Noah begins to offer up this offering, uh, how many animals did he have to sacrifice? How long did this take? It wasn't just one sacrifice. He sacrificed, the Bible says, of every clean beast and of every clean fowl. And so this offering could have taken days or weeks because he was killing them and then burning them on an altar unto God. This signifies that God has a right to tell us what we are to give regardless of any inconveniences associated with the offering. We think that an offering should not inconvenience us at all. We, we think, because you know, we're the McChurch now, we're the McNation Everything should be instant pudding. But the Lord will often require an offering of us that will be very inconvenient. And for Noah to give this offering that may really, it may have taken a week or two to kill that many animals. I mean, you got to go to the ark. You got to pull out one or two at a time because you don't pull them all out at once. Because you got to build pens too. You don't forget there's only eight of them in every animal imaginable on this thing a thousand feet long. And you got to bring them out and, all right, uh, let, how do we kill it? we got a knife. we got a club. Whack it in the head. Whack it again. Make sure it's really dead because I don't want to throw this thing on the fire and it's still alive. This thing took a while. How many species of animals are there? Maybe they just took them on by genus. I don't know. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You know, the taxonomy of animal kingdom. I don't know. I'm not a biologist. Number three, this is the first animal sacrifice. Noah's burnt offering is the first offering that required the death of an animal. This is the first time it's required. A burnt sacrifice kills stuff. Hopefully it's dead before you burn it. This signifies that an offering should cost us something. If it doesn't cost you anything, what are you offering? If it's just junk out of your hoarder's closet, it's not an offering. You should feel it when you give it. It isn't just giving and you didn't recognize it was gone. That was somebody doing you a favor. But when you give an offering, you should feel it, even if it's just a dollar. You should be mindful that this is leaving your life because you love God. First offering of consecration, and that's what's critical about this offering above all. Noah's offering was the first offering of consecration. The smoke rising from this burnt offering, and that's the word ula. It means to ascend, to exalt, to rise up. The smoke rising symbolizes in the Hebrew culture... God being exalted. The smoke being exalted, the smoke rising up is representative of God being exalted, God being glorified. The praises of God's people going up to him. The consumption of the animal, the total consumption of the animal by fire symbolized Noah's total dedication to the Lord or consecration, uh, his consumption by the Lord in his life to live for the Lord. Under the law, the burnt offering would represent consecration to the Lord. That's covered in Leviticus chapter 1. 2,400 years after this. 
This establishes the principle that our offerings are meant to glorify God. So we give an offering and our heart is to glorify him, to exalt him, to bring praise to his name. That's why we give the dollar or the five dollars or whatever your offering is. But our offerings also help us stay consecrated to the Lord. It is a good rule. It's a good practice. If you start to feel yourself wavering in your faith, double down on it. Give an offering to the Lord. Because where your money is, that's where your heart will be. I have served five pastors in my Christian walk. And every one of them the devil's tried to separate me from, except for Pastor Vaughn, my father in the faith who's in heaven now. But all the other four, the Lord would try to separate me from. And so when I, excuse me, the devil would try to separate me from my pastor. So when I could feel that backslidden thing coming on me, I'd send a big offering just to say, shut up, devil. I'm rededicating my life and you're not going to pull me away from my spiritual covering. Offerings help you stay consecrated. One of the things I do as a pastor, I see the tithe chart. I don't know what anybody gives. That's my own personal benefit. Some of my preacher friends disagree with me on that. I don't want to know what anybody gives, but I have a chart that doesn't have any numbers on the side so I can see how people are doing financially. For the business owners, when the money is going up, I know their business is doing well. When I see it plummet, I know something's wrong. I can pray. One of the things I've noted every time, when people's hearts begin to leave the Lord, their tithe chart goes down. If I know their heart hasn't left the Lord, I might call them up. I've done this with a lot of you. Everything okay? I got the tithe chart. Your giving's down. Oh, pastor, it's been a bad month. Please pray for us. We had this come up and, oh, all right. Well, so-and-so's not working. Well, why didn't you tell me? We could pray for you. I just didn't want to bother you. But I do know, all right, before people leave a church or get into sin, start fornicating, their money always disappears because they don't love God much anymore. Amen. I think it's funny. I'm 40 years old and my parents still buy me birthday presents and Christmas presents and anniversary presents and now Father's Day presents because they still love me. That's what you do when you love. You keep giving. When you don't love, you don't give. When you're not thankful, you don't give. Amen. The Bible says some people worship the God of their belly. And you can tell because that belly gets bigger. (laughs) Amen. Number five, a a, a first sweet-smelling savor. Noah's offering was the first offering recorded as a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. The term literally means a smell that brings rest. And this reveals what our, our giving does for the Lord. A proper offering brings the Lord joy has nothing to do with the amount, has everything to do with the heart. This expression is used 43 times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. And I listed the New Testament references to a sweet-smelling savor. The odor rising up to God that proves we are consecrated and we're committed to Jesus Christ. So third and final offering here of these first three offerings. Again, our word is ula. This is a commanded offering. This is another burnt offering. The third offering recorded in the Bible is Abraham's offering of Isaac. Can you believe the third offering would be a human sacrifice? Of course, we know it was a test. It didn't ever come to pass, but it was a test. Genesis 22, 1, 2, and 12 in the New American Standard. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, notice he has to clarify which son this is. Abraham had multiple children by this time. 
Ishmael being one of them, and he had, I think, five more children after Isaac. So the Lord says, take your son. And you're sure Abraham's going, which one don't I like? Which one don't I like? Your only son. Oh. The one you love the most. Oh. See, this is an offering that starts to get at the heart of what you hold precious. The thing that can become an idol. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So he does that all by faith. So we'll jump ahead to verse 12. And the angel said, lay not thy hand upon the lad. Apparently they were Scottish. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, or it is seen. I want you to see that this offering was a test to see where Abraham's heart truly was. And that should be very nerve-wracking for all of us. This is the first offering the Lord directly commanded anyone in the Bible narrative. The first time he commanded an offering. He didn't command Cain's offering. He didn't command Abel's offering. He didn't command Noah's offering. Those were all freely given of their own free will. Their will provoked them to give something to the Lord. This one, Abraham doesn't have an option. He's commanded out of the blue. Consider the following principles this offering establishes. Number one, this offering wasn't Abraham's idea. (laughs) And that kind of lets us know there's going to be some offerings that aren't our idea. And uh, they're probably going to come out of the blue and they're going to uh, ruin your day. This establishes the principle that God will command an offering from us from time to time. He might even command us where to offer it. And I think maybe if you've served God long enough, you have the testimony. The Lord spoke to you to, to take this and take it over here and give it to this person. And even though this person was being blessed, you did it as an offering unto the Lord. It establishes the principle that, God, that the Lord God can and will demand or command something of us and even tell us where to give it. Number two, some offerings are designed to test and stretch our faith. When, when it's your heart compelling you to give, you're probably not going to stretch yourself like God could. Because there's always that flesh nature that kicks in and says, how about, how about not $150, how about just $100? All right, yeah, you know, it's a free will offering. I, free, I, will, freely, I will freely give $100. $150 won't be so free or willing. Uh, but the Lord will come along and say, well, double down, make it $300, just to stretch you. Or he might say, get rid of this hobby and never go back. I want you to give this up. I want you to get rid of this friendship. It's destroying your life. I want you to walk away and never look back. Those are the kind of things the Lord can command of us and really prove our heart. This is the offering that proves how much we really love God and how much we will really serve him. And you know, the Lord already knows the answer. He wants us to know. He wants us to see what we're made out of. Sometimes we think we love God. Sometimes we think we're devoted to God. And he shows up not, I mean, do you think the Lord is ignorant of certain things in our life? He knows everything. He knows how we're going to respond before we respond. These things are always done for our benefit. This fact establishes the principle that God expects our faith to grow in the area of offerings. If he's going to stretch us, stretching you makes you grow. Stretching you extends your your faith. It expands your territory. It expands your ability to believe and trust and hope in God. But you never know that when all you ever do is you dictate your steps. 
And it's like if it's, if it's a race, the Lord will say, all right, I want you to run this next lap twice as fast. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Just do it. You might actually have to cry out to God for help for a change. Number three, a commanded offering may often touch something dear to our hearts. This establishes the principle that some offerings are designed to prune idolatry. I've had to give up many hobbies in my life. And uh, I, I honestly, probably the most, the one that ripped my heart out the most was Iaido or Kenjutsu, Japanese sword fighting. I had gotten into that and the Lord required me to give it up. And for a guy who loves all things Japanese, there's nothing cooler than knowing how to use a samurai sword to cut things up. And then to be trained by like a fourth degree black belt in Iaido to be able to do that, that's so guy, that's so dude. And yet the Lord said, give it up. It's an offering. Didn't cost me a dime. I have never wept like that. Now, which is silly for you because you're like, that's so stupid. But I guarantee you the Lord could talk to you tonight about something that you've got to give up and you'd lay in bed and cry yourself to sleep because we all have those things in our heart. For Abraham, it was his son Isaac. For me, it was Iaido or Kenjutsu, depends on what style we want to talk about. But the Lord's going to do it because he wants our heart. He wants nothing else to have it. He will give us anything just so long as it doesn't have us. The second it has us, he will take it away from us. He will gladly give you the world, so to speak, if he has your heart and can trust you. But if you have any idolatry, you can be flat guaranteed and perhaps the next offering he commands will be that dainty, dear thing, whatever it may be. Number four, you will only get to know God as Jehovah Jireh if you obey him with the commanded offering. Now, Abraham is the one who declared Mount Moriah, which is the temple mount now, which is where David bought Ornan's threshing floor, which is where Solomon built the temple, which is where the mercy seat sat. All of it is the same mountain in Jerusalem, which is now the contested temple mount where the wailing wall is at there in modern Jerusalem. He called that place Jehovah Jireh because he obeyed God, was willing to sacrifice the dearest thing he'd ever known, and God came through at the last moment, and God provided something greater than the lamb he was expecting. The Lord provided a ram. Lambs are little bitty. Rams are very big. You know, lamb will weigh 25, 30, 50 pounds. A ram can weigh three and 400 pounds. They said the Lord will provide a lamb. The Lord shows up with a ram. That's more than enough. That's, that is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord shall supply the cup that runneth over. You only get to know that when you're willing to sacrifice the things that make you cry. We like to call him Jehovah Jireh, but very few Christians actually know him as Jehovah Jireh because they're not willing to make the sacrifice that rips your heart out. Even talk about it now, you're like, uh, why can't we just be comfortable in Christ? Because that's called being backslid. These are the last days. Pastors are preaching against Jesus now, leading their whole congregations to hell. I'm not interested in being comfortable. I'm not interested in being a Walmart Christian. We don't preach a Walmart gospel where we roll back the price. This gospel still costs you everything, even your precious little hobbies and dainties friendships <laughs> we don't spend enough time in the gospel reading the prerequisites to being a christian this establishes the principle that god is only obligated to provide for us as we obey him please keep that in mind he's only obligated to provide if we obey him if you're a backslidden christian the lord will not provide anything for you but misery 
until you return as a prodigal and come home. The Lord will not provide for you. He will not bless you. So many Christians are frustrated that, that they're not prospering, but they don't obey God. They waste their money on so much frivolous stuff. They're disobedient. They don't sacrifice. They want to know why other Christians are prospering. Well, because we make the sacrifice in private. This is confirmed in the New Testament, Philippians 4, 18 and 19. Paul said, I have received of Epaphroditus that which was lacking, uh, a sweet-smelling savor acceptable unto the Lord, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. You can only claim that verse if you're supplying the Lord's needs. So here's a review real quick. 14 things we can learn from these first three offerings. 14 principles, aspects of giving an offering that we've got to learn. Number one, we're going to blow through this quick. God needs nothing we have, but he does want our heart. Amen. Offerings are a way to honor God and pay him tribute. Number three, offerings are based on what you do have and not based on what you don't have. Number four, an offering is a reflection of your heart and attitude toward God. Those that love much, give much. Those that love little, give little. It's all a reflection. We must not give grudgingly. We must always be sure to give joyfully. Offerings are given in holy places with a holy reverence. That's why in our church we line up and we come down. It's just so too easy to flippantly just toss something in a bucket or toss something in an offering plate, throw change like you're throwing the dice at a craps table or something. Now, there ought to be some reverence in what you're doing for the Lord. Offerings should cost us something. Offerings can help us consecrate and even rededicate our lives to the Lord. Number 10, if properly presented to the Lord, an offering will be a sweet-smelling savor to Him, a smell that brings Him rest. Number 11, God has the right to command an offering that may touch your dearest possession or even assault your idolatry. Uh, 1 John says, last verse of the whole epistle says, flee idolatry, little children. Even Christians get into idolatry. Number 12, offerings will test and stretch our faith at times. Thirteen, offerings will cause you to know God as Jehovah Jireh. And finally, offerings allow, number 14, offerings allow God to provide your needs in a supernatural way. Amen. So may our heart yearn to honor God and obey Him with our offerings. I hope you've learned something this morning. And these first three offerings, there is a lot there. And uh, we want to make sure we find our Lord's heart when it comes to giving. Let's pray and we'll get ready for service. Father... We thank you for Sunday school this morning. We thank you for this teaching on offerings. I pray that this strengthens our church and it equips our heart to honor you with your tithe and our offerings. May this put a, a, a desire in the heart of this church to be honorable and to always pay tribute and to demonstrate our love towards you. Bless the tithers and givers. Provide for us. Be our Jehovah Jireh in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have about 11 minutes before service.